0: The New Testament reading for Sunday, Philippians 3, 17-4, 1, begins with a call to imitation. Brothers and sisters, Paul says, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. Broadly speaking, American evangelicalism, and I think evangelicalism more broadly, globally, has done a great disservice by eliminating the examples of the saints. I think it's fair to say we've insisted that the only life worth imitating is the life of Jesus, or perhaps the life of biblical characters, men and women in the stories of Scripture, especially the stories of the Old Testament. But I think it's absolutely essential right, that we have clear sense that Jesus is not primarily our example. In fact, in the most basic sense, he's not an example at all. He's the condition in which examples become possible. Right. So Jesus is not one of the holy ones, not the most holy of all the holy ones. There's no... His his example includes all the examples of the saints. Right. The saints are members of his body. They're their manifestations of him, their lives tell aspects, facets of his fullness. And I, I think it's critical that we recover this call to imitation and this sense of imitating saints living and to us dead. Right? And and to do that, right, we need iconography, we need hagiography, we need to share stories in all kinds of ways, that that direct attention to the kinds of lives we can live, right? The the saints are showing us what is possible. If you haven't read it, there's an astonishing passage in Ben Meyer's book on Rowan Williams' theology. Christ the Stranger, I think, is the title of of Ben's book. But he, he talks about the saints in... Rowan Williams theology and and the ways in which the saints knock us off balance, show us how life is possible. In the sanctifying interpretation book that I did, I, I draw on all of that, second edition especially, to show that the saints provide us with glimpses of what kind of life is possible in Christ. I've been doing a lot of work, some of you know, on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And one of the things that strikes me about Bonhoeffer's life and his theology is the conviction that the will of God can be done. It can be discerned and it can be done. That sin is always a failure of imagination. Disobedience comes about because I, I cannot see, I cannot work out how the will of God might be done in any given moment. The Saints show us how that is possible, how it is possible to obey God even under these conditions. and I, we we have to recover that in short. So Paul, after calling the Philippians to imitate him, which is you know, audacious right he he's He's insisting that that they can trust him in this way right? and i I think that that is in itself remarkable. Many of us, maybe all of us at some level, have a hard time trusting ourselves enough to encourage other people to imitate us. Maybe others of us, maybe all of us in some way, um, are are too confident about setting the right example. I, I think what makes part of what sin, what evil and injustice have has done have done to our humanity is make it so that the absurdity of that does in fact show up in our lives, right? That that we are simultaneously self-confident in a way that's false and toxic, and we are self-doubting in a way that's false and toxic. But be that as it may, Paul Paul calls them to himself. But I, I think what marks what what makes Paul's invitation to them, trustworthy, is the fact that he writes with tears, right? So he, he in the next sentence he says, "For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears, right So that out of the anguish of Paul's intercession for those who are enemies of the cross, he offers this invitation for the Philippians to imitate his life. What they're imitating, is his love for Jesus his love for the love of Jesus for his enemies his devotion to the cross and his pain at the ways in which Christ is being crucified afresh and and that is that gives integrity and vitality to the life he's living right his his intimacy with the death of Jesus his grief over the death of others like that that gives his life that marks his life, the, the stigmata show up in his life as he, as he'll say in Galatians right. he bears in his body the marks, and his prayers bear that same that same woundedness and and so do his letters. Uh, l- let's take a moment to reflect on. What we mean when we talk about enemies of the cross of Christ. So he says of those enemies, their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. This, If you connect this passage with James, which talks about the wisdom from above and the wisdom from below, and the story of Peter in Caesarea Philippi confessing... That Jesus is Christ, the Son of the Christ, the Son of the Living God, and then immediately manhandling Jesus, when Jesus says that he's going to Jerusalem to be betrayed and to be crucified, you can you can see this this thread, also Colossians 2, I would say. If you lay those passages alongside each other, you can see that that evil uses our quote-unquote earthly thinking in order to to make us into resistors of the will of God, people who are enemies of the cross. And this, so I, I don't think it's merely a Pauline inside. I mean, it's there in the gospel of Matthew. It's there in the letter of James. And, and of course it shows up in Philippians and Colossians as well, that the, the evil one is manipulating our worldly thoughts. What makes common sense to us, like what, the, the, the ways of thinking that have shaped our conscience and our consciousness. Evil is working with those thoughts against the wisdom of God, which appears as foolishness in those ways of thinking. And this, this, of course, relates to what's happening in the wilderness, right? That Jesus, his temptation, what he's undergoing, the temptations that are welling up in him, that are rising up in him, are rising up in him because they are ways of thinking that have that he that he's inherited right that he he has taken in from the world in which he lives and he of course is able to recognize them for what they are and offer them to god for correction but most of us are not able most of the time to recognize how those ways of thinking are at odds with god so enemies of the cross are people who think along the lines of common sense they think in worldly ways but that worldly thinking paul says is tied to a glorying in shame and a, a kind of divinizing or deifying of appetite so let, let me unpack that just a bit there's a, there's an irony here right in that paul is talking about the cross which is a shameful death as he himself will know uh, will note right various places in the right, including Galatians, right? That Christ, the one who hangs on a cross, is cursed. It's a shameful death. And Paul also will argue that the cross is glorious, right? So like in Corinthians, he will say that Christ is the Lord of glory and that we have been glorified. We've been brought into our glory by his death. If the gods of this world had known what they were doing, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But he was, in fact, crucified for our glory. So Paul has some sense in which the cross is shameful and something to glory in, right? So there's a there's a perversion here, a way in which we have a a sick imitation. Right. So if if he's calling the Philippians to a kind of healthy, vital and life giving, vital and vitalizing imitation, he's immediately he's contrasting that with a death dealing imitation that is practiced by the enemies of the cross, right? So what we have here is, is a kind of contrast, right? You need to think about Psalm one, right? There's a, there's the way of the scoffer. There's the, the way of the fool in Proverbs, the Deuteronomy. There's a way of death and, and that way of death, the two ways, the way of death is Paul says a way of enmity toward the cross, Right. So enemies of the cross live in ways that end in death. As as Psalm one says, right, their their end is they, they end in nothingness, right? Their end is destruction. So there there are the enemies of the cross. And then there are friends of the cross, people who have befriended the sorrows of Jesus, who have befriended the the man of sorrows and and those who suffer with him and for whom he suffers. And those men and women, those sons and daughters, they they live with tears, in tears, for Christ, who's been crucified afresh, and for those who live the way of death and who live in ways that end in death. So I, I think it's, it's hard to name, of course, but we need to, to identify that difference between the the glorious shame of the cross that the friends of the cross love and the shameful glorying of the enemies of the cross who are thinking in ways that are natural and fallen and earthly and at odds with the wisdom of God. But they're thinking in ways that deny the truthfulness of the Sermon on the Mount, that deny the, the truthfulness of Mary's song. And I, as many of you have heard me say, I'm sure, if you've heard me talk any other time, I think that we, we have to learn to hear Scripture, the whole of Scripture, in the light of Jesus' sermon and Mary's song. Those texts set the tone for us. In fact, I I, I would argue that both of them are interpretations of the Decalogue, of the Ten Commandments, so that what we have At the heart of our textual tradition is the commandments of God. But those commandments have to be heard as words from Jesus, the crucified one. And to hear those rightly, we have to hear them from someone who knows him best. And that's his mother. So that Mary's song about Jesus' life and what his life will bring about, his death and what his death will bring about, is necessary to interpret Jesus' sermon rightly. And both are necessary to hear the Ten Commandments rightly. And without hearing the Ten Commandments rightly, we can't hear anything else in, in our scriptures rightly. So if we begin kind of with, with that trio of texts, the Decalogue, read through the lens, and in the light of the Sermon on the Mount and Mary's song, we, we get some sense of the wisdom of God. This is what Francis Young calls the mind of scripture. And the mind of scripture, the mind of Christ, the mind of the Spirit is at odds with the mind of the world the mind of caesar the mind of herod the mind of the the religious and political centers of power the mind of the temple the mind of the capital so i that that i think is what paul is calling us to this contrast between the two ways he's calling us to choose life and not death to live in ways that have befriended the cross and befriended the strange wisdom of God, befriended the eccentricity of the God of Mary's song and Jesus sermon on the Mount and, and is able therefore to recognize the, the foolishness of the seeming wisdom of worldly thinking of common sense of what seems to work in the world. And so Paul insists that the, this is all rooted in appetite. Their God is the belly. Their God is the belly. Uh, we, we might explore that a bit, or expound on it a bit, by saying, I think for some, some enemies of the cross, their God is not the belly, but the head, or the mouth. But, or or even the face, right? That there are ways in which we, we can glorify aspects of human being. But, I, th- I think the insight still holds. Like, the essential point is, that what leads us astray what the enemy uses to kind of weaponize worldly thinking in ways that stymie the work of the spirit that become a stumbling block for Jesus as he's at work in the world that keep the kingdom from coming and being and God's will be done being done on earth as it is in heaven what 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 the enemy preys on Is our appetite and of course some of that might just be crass I mean it could be lust in the in the basest sense gluttony greed and and we shouldn't underestimate the power of those appetites in our lives but I think there are more sophisticated tastes right so it it's not just a matter of the belly it can be a matter also of of taste right of desire- A refined desire, right? A desire that is is not bestial but angelic. And still, it is a desire that is other than the desire of God, which is the for the good of our neighbor and the lasting good of our neighbor. So i I think we need we need to sit long and think carefully prayerfully about what those appetites are in us that are being used against us weaponized against us and lent is the season for that i mean that's that's at the heart of the fasting tradition at the heart of the practice of ascesis and self-denial is this recognition That there are desires in us, there are appetites in us that have to be crucified, that have to be altered, that we need God to give us the desires of our heart, rather than simply trusting those desires and asking God to fulfill them. Because some of what we desire, at least some of what we think we desire, is in fact not true to, to our need right it, it we we want things we don't need we might say and and yet it's it's not paul is not denigrating appetite per se you know jesus says man does not live by bread alone but of course we need bread and jesus is not just this is one of the criticisms against jesus is that unlike john the baptist who is austere and lives a, a wildly ascetic life that jesus not only eats bread, he drinks wine. Right? And Jesus is accused of being a drunkard. And I'm sure there are good reasons he was accused of it. So it's not appetite per se that's being condemned. I mean, God is the God of the belly. God has a belly. God is carried in Mary's belly. So it, it this is not some kind of body shaming. Right? This is This is not denigration of appetite per se it is the the recognition that there is a way of confusing our appetites with the desires of god of of thinking that what i want is in fact what i need and therefore what god wants for me and and that has to be challenged and it has to be challenged in the practice of fasting and and of course fasting from food etc fasting from the what is sensual but also fasting from what is intellectual fasting from what is spiritual that there there are ways in which we can develop an appetite for spiritual experience and and i mean in in one crass form of that or one kind of obvious example there's a there's a way in which we can fall in love with having church we can fall in love with with preaching itself not the word of god not the hearing and speaking of the word of the gospel, but simply with the the performance of preaching itself, or the performance of prayer, or singing, or whatever else it may be. And this is why in the mystical tradition, I'm thinking St. John of the Cross in particular, Teresa, there's this insistence that God has to save us from our experience of God, that that we can develop an appetite for the experience of God. And that also has, we have to be saved from that. We have, we, have to, we have to have that sanctified letdown that reminds us that we're called to love God and neighbor, not to love the experience of God any more than we love the experience our neighbor gives us. So I may be dwelling too long on this point, but I, I think there are aspects here that, that are often lost on us. So then, uh, one more word from the epistle, and then I'll turn to the other text briefly. Paul says, Our citizenship, unlike these enemies of the cross, our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory, by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. So this this is a remarkable and i think deeply mysterious claim that paul is making when he talks about the body of our humiliation i think he is talking about the fact that our bodies are not right right that our bodies are not as they should be the body you and i live in and this there's a there's a lot of nonsense and a lot of half sense not not out and out nonsense but some half sense being spoken about embodiment in Christian circles. And it's become kind of chic to, to insist on bodies. But the Cornel West, I I heard him once talking about the risks of always talking about bodies and losing the fact that we are persons and that sometimes our bodies are, are broken. Our bodies betray us. Our bodies are not true to our personhood. And this is what I think is happening say with with dementia, right? Even though we need to be careful here of the ri- the real risks of ableism and and we need to challenge what we've thought of as normal and healthy. We 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 still have to leave room for the fact that there is disease, there is disability that is not to be not to be accepted merely as an alternative ability. There there really is a breaking down, a betrayal of our body, our bodies are not inherently in every form good that our embodiment is good, but our body, my body my brain chemistry the 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 cancer that grows in the body of my friends and I'm thinking here about Daniela and Marin. Like the uh, the this is not good, right? And so when Paul talks about the body of our humiliation, he's he's owning that our bodies are are wrecked and we need our bodies to be conformed to the body of his glory. We need that kind of transformation. And and Int Wright, I think, is almost single handedly oh misled us here. Although, of course, he's far from alone. But he's he's been the most he's been the loudest voice in the room, insisting on the goodness of embodiment. And in a sense, rightly so, but it's a half sense. Because while we want to affirm the goodness of embodiment, we don't want to reduce human being to embodiment as we know it now, because that embodiment is a body an embodiment in humiliation. Not humility, which is divine and eternal, but humiliation. And what we need is the embodiment of glory. And that is the embodiment the risen Christ knows and, and holds for us. And it's, it's going to be possible for us to be conformed to that glorified embodiment, Paul says, because Christ has the power to make all things subject to himself. He, he has the power to make all things his body, to bring all things into alignment with his will, with his person. And so we can say, and I think we should say, that all of creation then is one person, one person's body, one person's embodiment, and that is Jesus. And out of that kind of recognition, this deeply mystical sense of the mystery of Christ's embodiment, glorious embodiment, glorious because it shares in the infinity of God. It's glorious because it shares in the triune life, right? Jesus is bodily present everywhere God is present. Therefore, Paul says, brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Right. So twice he he speaks of them as those he loves and longs to see. So again, you have this deep affection, right? The tears that he cries for Christ and those who are crucifying Christ afresh and now, these, these tears of joy, these tears of, of delightful longing for those he loves, his beloved in the Lord, his joy and crown, he out of that deep affection comes this call to stand firm in the Lord. To stand firm in the Lord. And that, what they're standing firm in, like what they're holding to, is not Christianity or a, a Christian nation or their denominational tradition, what they're standing firm in is the hope of the glorious embodiment that Christ brings about by conforming all things to his will, by conforming all things to the will of the Father. And, and that, and nothing less than that, right, is what Paul means when he talks about our, citizens, our citizenship being in heaven. And that cuts right against the grain of, of all Christian nationalism. So before I turn to the other text, let me, let me say the Patriarch Kirill, Patriarch of Moscow, who has I think shown himself to be profoundly, like shockingly unworthy over the last few weeks of his defense, not just defense, but advocacy for the war in Ukraine. His Silly comments about gay pride parades, but then anything but silly claims that this war is somehow the enactment of the justice of God uh, not not just a necessary evil but but an act of good in the world. and you can you can look up his sermons for yourself. I mean that that's what it looks and sound like sounds like to be an enemy of the cross and to forget. That to have your citizenship in heaven is not to shirk all responsibility for your neighbor or to ignore the common good or to have no part in politics. I mean, when Paul talks about our citizenship being in heaven, he does not mean that we, we can't worry about anything worldly. That's the last thing he means. What he means is we have to come into our care for the world. We have to live for the common good in ways that are true to the kingdom of God, true to the will of God embodied in Jesus, and therefore true to the Ten Commandments understood in the Sermon on the Mount and Mary's song. And that's what we have to stand firm in. So with with kind of that, all of that, Bear, let me turn then to the gospel. Which I think is Jesus bringing all of that to bear against Herod. Against the mind of scripture is is confronting and casting out the mind of Herod. This is Luke 13. Some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. And just a quick note. we, we, We often caricature the Pharisees. We turn them into the arch enemies of Jesus. And they are, of course, at odds with him. But not in the, in the same ways that the chief priests are, or the Herodians are. Not in the same ways that the crowds are. The Pharisees, theologically, and I think spiritually, are closest to Jesus. And here they warn him, right? Herod wants to kill you. And, and this is a telling response from Jesus. Go and tell that fox for me, listen. I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow and the next day I must be on my way because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. I mean this is this is like all-time shade. It it it's easily lost on us, right? That Jesus does not defer to these authorities, not to the high priest not to Pilate, not to Herod. He he's defiant, not not in a kind of sophomoric way. I mean he's not he's not pretentiously defying them, but he has no he, he's not cowed by their positions. He's not deferential to them because of that. And this I think it's hard to overstate the importance of the fact that Jesus engaged the poor and the sick, with dignity, but refuses to dignify Herod's and Pilate's and Caiaphas's pretensions. Go and tell that fox for me. And, th- and this is an insult. Right? This is This is an insult levied at Herod. And it's doubtful that the Pharisees would relate it. I'm sure they didn't want Herod to hear them saying that Jesus said this. But I, no doubt the word did get back to Herod that Jesus spoke of him this way. Uh, it, it is, it is a, a denigration. Herod is no lion. He's no more than a fox. And he not only insults Herod, he insults the, the whole system that is Jerusalem, the temple system that Jesus, as, you know, as we'll find out later in the gospel, believes has, has been deeply corrupted. It's impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. And, and we have to, again, ask why this is. Why is it that Patriarch Kirill and other Christian leaders, ancient, medieval, modern, how is it that they get so caught up in the systems of this world, the temple systems of this world, the capital systems of this world, Why is it that they get taken in by tribal thinking, right by folk thinking? I, 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 it is. It comes, I think, from this bad deference to authority, from glorying in something that is in fact shameful. And Herod's pretensions are shameful. And this, this kind of, there is a, there's a false glory here. And something Herod should be ashamed of. And all of the religious leaders around Herod should be ashamed of. But instead they play to it. And I mean, you don't need me to make the connection for you in terms of what American evangelicals have done in relation to political power. And what before that, mainline Protestants, liberal Protestants in America had done. So this is... Lately, because of the growth of the evangelical movement and evangelical tradition, there have become enough evangelicals for it to be a, a, a weighty political faction, right? And, and with that comes temptations. But that, that was, that's as much the history of, um, or at least in many ways, it's as much the history of, of liberal American Protestantism as it, is, as it is of conservative evangelicalism now. And so there, there has to be this kind of recognition of the wisdom of the cross and the recognition that Herod does not, Putin does not live according to the wisdom of the cross. And so whoever we are as church leaders, whether we're patriarchs and bishops or priests and deacons or laypersons, it doesn't matter. Whoever we are, we have to make sure we are not kowtowing to that that false glory, to that shameful glory, and re- recognize those pretensions for what they are. Right, and and when we do recognize them, then we will be able to discern the difference between the the wisdom of the cross and the wisdom of the world that's at odds with the cross, or at least we'll, we'll, we'll be better able to discern the difference. And we won't, we won't be awed by the systems of the temple and the capital. We won't be awed by the power of the tribe. And so Jesus, no sooner has he made this insult than he, than he falls into prayer. And I think you see the same depth of affection, or, or something like the same depth of affection, in Jesus that we saw in Paul. right? So that Paul's call... To imitation and his critique of the enemies of the cross is rooted in his intercession, in his grief, in his agony. And here, Jesus' insult against Herod, an insult that's meant, like all good insults, should be meant, to liberate us from illusion. Right? This is this is why there, there is a kind of holy mockery that the prophets engage in. Think of Elijah mocking the prophets of Baal, right? That satire and and other forms of comedy, one of their holy functions is to rescue us from illusions about power and illusions about control and authority and force. And so this insult, this holy insult Jesus levies against Herod for the Pharisees' sake and for our sake immediately spills over into, or maybe it'd be better, it spills out because it arises from this deep grief over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. And you were not willing. So there's this a mystery here about what it is that we want, why it is, what is it that makes the difference between the friends of the cross and the enemies of the cross. It's this willingness to be gathered by Jesus, Right, this willingness to be gathered as a hen gathers her brood. And in, instead of being gathered by the hen, we are gathered by the fox. Right? Instead of being gathered by the mothering way of Jesus, we end up, because let me put it like this, because we refuse to be gathered by the hen as her brood, we end up being devoured by the fox. That's that, That's how I think I want to say it. And the only thing that will save us from being devoured by the fox is to be gathered by the hen, to be brought up under the wings of Jesus that are his arms outstretched on the cross. One more word, and I'll stop. In Genesis text, Abraham is encountered by God in a vision. He's told not to be afraid and promise that his reward will be great and Abraham responds in ways that Luke clearly knows so it, this is not related to to these reflections directly but when you are reading Luke 1 and reading the ways in which Zechariah and then Mary respond to the angelic visitation you need to read Luke 1 in light of Genesis 15 because Zechariah and Mary are asking the same questions that Abraham asks under new conditions But but that's a footnote what I want to draw attention to here is what happens when Abraham brings the sacrifice. And so in the middle of this text, he's told, Abraham is told, I am the by the Lord. I am the Lord who brought you from the Ur of the Chaldeans, Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. Right? So I'm the God who's called you out, right? Out of Jerusalem, out of the systems of the world, out of the temple, out of the tribe. Out of the capital, away from the mind of Herod and, and the mind of, of Caesar, into the mind of Christ. And Abraham says, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he's immediately called to sacrifice. Bring me a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. So a kind of range of sacrifices. And Abraham brings these and cuts them in two. Not the birds, but all the other animals. He cuts them in two and lays them over against... He halves them, essentially. And there's so much I'd like to say here. I think we we easily misread sacrifice in Scripture and misread what is being called for. And I think it's, it's essential to hear this in light of Psalm 40 and Psalm 50, Psalm 51 the book of Hebrews that insists that God does not want sacrifice, right? God, what, what God wants is a broken and a contrite heart. So God's calling for this sacrifice, I think, is an anticipation of when he calls for the offering of Isaac later. I think it's, it's, it's vital, pun intended, to hear this call for sacrifice, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and pigeon, which, by the way, is also a dove, bring all of this to me, but notice there's no directions about what to do with it. Abraham brings them and cuts them in two. He, he starts to carry out the sacrifice, just as he seems to be about to do with Isaac later in Genesis. But what happens is God falls upon him. Right. So there's two details in the text that, that I want to attend to before I wrap up. One is that after he's kind of cut these Bodies, after he is very carefully and skillfully, no doubt, and humanely sacrificed these animals, Abraham drives the birds of prey away. He guards the carcasses. And he guards them in obviously waiting on God to act, waiting on God to come and devour these carcasses, to to receive them. And this is, of course, recalls a story or anticipates, I should say, a story that will come later with the story of Rizpah, who defends the bodies of the slain in the way that here Abraham descends, defends the body of the sacrifices. And, and this is, I think, it's a primal image right, of driving the birds of prey away from sacrifice. But then, while he's doing this, in this posture of kind of driving the birds of prey away, a deep sleep falls upon him. The sun goes down, and a deep sleep falls on him, which, of course, does recall the sleep that falls on Adam. right? So this is the sleep of creation, the sleep of new creation, the sleep out of which will come a new life. The scripture calls it, a deep and terrifying darkness. A deep and terrifying darkness. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, that deep and terrifying darkness had, had completely wrapped him up. A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the the river Euphrates. So this, this is, I think, the book of Hebrews picks this up. This is... a a promise about what Christ will accomplish, which Philippians refers to as subjecting all things to himself. I that that Christ will bring all things from rabbits and radishes to archangels and planetary systems, right? He will bring all things into conformity with the will of God. He will fill them up with the light that is the life of God. And all of that happens while Abraham is asleep. And this, I think, is the heart of Lent and spirituality. Even though there there are aspects of, of Lent that have to do with fasting, as I said, denying our belly so that our belly never forgets that it is not God. And there are aspects of Lent that have to do with driving the birds of prey away, right? Standing with the sacrifices and resisting evil thoughts. It's what really matters is what happens when the deep sleep falls upon us, when we actually enter into the death of Christ. And this is, I think, the deep mystical sense of being a friend of the cross. Not just being a friend of the Jesus who died, but being, befriending the death he makes possible for us, right? That because he's died, we can die a particular kind of death, even before we die. That's the death we enter into in our baptism. And as we live out our baptism, we we die into that death. And the more completely we die into that death, the more we let that deep and terrifying darkness that is, in fact, the unapproachable light of God settle on us, the more Christ can be formed in us. And and that, that, of course, happens in the depths of prayer. That, of course, happens in the depths of openness to God, past words, past images, I think the reason that it happens is that we or a way of talking about the reason that it happens is that in those moments of yieldedness to God, we are, we're giving up any illusions of control and any ambitions to grasp for power. Like we're letting ourselves be brooded under the wings of the hen rather than hunting like the fox or being devoured by it. And, we will find, I think, in those moments that what, what God wants is not sacrifice, right? Not for us to, to give him things, but to be present in such a way that we can receive the gift that he is. And, and that, and nothing less than that, is what Lent is making room for.